Romans chapter 9. We uh, got about halfway through. Let's pick up with verse 19. And Paul, remember chapter 19 and 11? Uh, he's, He's chapter 8. You know, he's talking about you know, us being in Christ and what that means to be justification, sanctification. He'll pick back up uh, in that in chapter 12. Uh, but in 19 and 11, Paul, as he so often does, uh, kind of takes a, a little detour. It's, it's relevant, but he wants to talk about the, the position or the place of the Jewish people in terms of salvation. And, and so he has his three chapters. Of course, he didn't write in chapters, but for us, three chapters where he talks about God working in their life. And we, we saw, you know, last week uh, about God choosing uh, for salvation those among the Gentiles. And so we see in verse 19 uh, a question that may be asked. And Paul is good at kind of raising questions that maybe he has heard, that people have asked, and then he answers them. Um, they're, not, they're not for discussion. He raises it and he answers it. So he says, Will you say to me then, why does he, that is God, still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now remember, first prior to that, he talked about God has mercy on whom he has mercy. He visits on whom he chooses with wrath. He talked about that he chose uh, Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. That God you know, used the rebellion of Pharaoh as an opportunity to demonstrate uh, his, his holiness, his glory, and his wrath. And so we may say then um, that, as verse 18, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, hardens whom he hardens. Then why would God ever find fault with us? Because if this is how God is, who can resist that? In other words, the tendency, and we see that today, is to say, I'm not at fault then if I am in rebellion against God. That is God who is at fault because he has created me this way or made me this way. It is, it is common in the world we live now for our default position in things that are morally questionable, morally against what God would want for us to blame God and say, he made me this way. And uh, we, we hear that quite often. And we need to understand that's been going on for a long, long time. In fact, it went all the way back to the very first sin. When Adam sinned and God held Adam accountable, he said, but you gave me the woman. I didn't want her. You gave her to me. Why are you blaming me for what you did? And so that line of arguing did not work well then and does not work well now. So notice... This, the response of Paul is not a response that people who are outside of salvation like to hear. In fact, they would probably reject it. But when you're in the Christian community, this is, this is, Scripture is best understood by believers. Okay, God reveals himself to us. Now, he reveals himself to the lost so that they may find salvation. And that is important. But in his revelation, there are things that lost people can't grasp or understand. And those that is because they lack, first of all, having come to Christ. Secondly, they lack the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand. But thirdly, they lack an overall comprehension of God that is adequate because they are still in rebellion against God. So when you're in rebellion against God... The reply that we're about to see is not something they would like. Paul says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So it is, it is the classic understanding in that we simply God has creator and creates us as he sees fits. Now, we will see as we go through this, and we've already seen in length dealing with sin, that we all choose to sin. We are born with a nature and a disposition to sin, and we act on it. Chapter 3, 4, 5, 6. I mean, we just we continually saw that the, the idea of us, the concept for us, uh, all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18, you know, we, we, we are bent towards rebellion against God. So we need to understand that. But remember, he's, he's talking in part about the relationship of Israel. So he, he's referring, in some sense, to what Jews might respond about their rebellion against God. You've got to keep that in mind when you, when you read this. But what he says applies to all of us. But he's writing to those people who would consider them God's people, who have not come to Christ. He is reminding them, Paul is, that God created them, and in creating God as creator, it is up to him to make the call as to what happens in their life. The pot doesn't get to tell the potter what he is to make. And the potter may make a vessel for positive, for, for you know, good use, for something wholesome and worthy. He may make a pot, you know, to, to throw trash in. He may, you know, any of y'all remember spittoons, you know? Any of y'all still use them? Two or three ladies still out there? Um, my grandmother, great-grandmother, I remember when she chewed tobacco. My great-grandmother dipped snuff. That was the craziest thing for me. I see my great-grandmother dipping snuff, spitting it in a spittoon. So we go to family reunions, and there'd be spittoons everywhere, because they're all, they all a bunch of rednecks chewed tobacco. That's obviously not a vessel created for you to drink water with. You would not want to do that. Well, we need to understand, when in, in the creative process, God in his sovereignty can do as he chooses. That does not negate our choosing to sin, our taking freedom to violate that. So laying out that principle, now he, he goes on and says more. It's even a little bit more difficult. What if, he says, just, let's just suppose, God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make his power known, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So in other words, God, he, he allowed people to sin. He allowed people to do that which is evil in, and withheld his wrath in order to, at some later point, make his wrath known. He did so. To make known, verse 23 says, the riches of his glory upon missiles of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but from among the Gentiles. So we have in here the concept of wrath. And my sermon Sunday, uh, dealing in Ephesians with the concept of wrath. Our fundamental problem when we come to passages like this is we like to think of God in terms of humans. So we think of our wrath, our anger. Uh, you've heard the you know saying you don't want to incur their wrath. Uh, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned in wrath. We use these phrases. 
Uh, we think of the Star Trek movie, uh, The Wrath of Khan. That concept of wrath is a very violent, it is a very selfish, I'm angry. You've offended me. You're going, I'm going to uh, attack you in some way. I'm going to come after you whether it's deserved or not. You don't want to deal with that wrath. In the New Testament, word for wrath is a word, okay, that means to simmer slowly to a point of boiling. It's to take a, a pot of water and, and to turn on the heat and to let it slowly come to a place of boil. You know how it is that when you want to boil something and you turn the heat on, no matter what you do, it takes forever to boil. So when I, when I boil eggs, my, my, and I'm very strategic, it's my way of thinking, I want to put as little water in there so it will boil as quickly as possible because I don't like to wait for the eggs to boil. I want it to be a quick process. So I'm measuring what's the minimum amount with the maximum amount of heat, because I'm turning that baby up all the way, and the minimum amount of water that I need to, to get to the, you know, you figure that out, because it takes forever. That's the, that's the idea of wrath. It is a slow simmering till it gets to a point where say God has enough. And so wrath is a part of God's unbelievable love in the fact that because God loves us, he can't let us continue in sin. In our rebellion. Do you have any idea what the world would be like if God removed his hand from humanity and let mankind dwell in the fullness of their sin? God is always at work, even in small ways, to hold back the evil of man. If if God allowed Satan to unleash all of his evil, what would humanity be like? Now, God delays it. He delays it for the purpose of giving us opportunities to come to Christ. He delays his wrath so that we can have every chance to come to Jesus. Go back to Genesis. And uh, I preached that message uh, at the first of the Christmas season. When God sent the flood, that was the wrath of God. He, he, got, he let it get to the part point where the thoughts of men and the hearts of men were only evil all the time. They were thoroughly, thoroughly submerged in evil. It was at that point he said enough's enough. But even then, he held back and spared Noah. It would be hard to argue to the depth of their sin that God was not just in punishing them. God's wrath is his holy activity towards sinful man. And it's what he brings. It is not a wrath without love. It is not a wrath without compassion. But it is a wrath that must, it must deal with the nature of sinfulness and rebellion. It is the choice we make to incur the wrath of God. So, he says, he's going to show his wrath and make his power known so that... The people that receive mercy and the riches of his glory understand the depth of his mercy. Now he's telling the Jews, this is also not just for the Jewish Jews, but for Gentiles. Now, the thing the Jews always neglected to do, and they were horrible at it, was taking God's, in the Old Testament, God's message to the Gentiles. They wanted Gentiles condemned. Jews wanted Gentiles to suffer. There is not 
lost the spiritual irony that it is the Gentiles who have flooded to Christ and not the Jews. So he says to them, in, in bringing, remember, all this is about bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom, as he's chosen to do that, that he has chosen to show his mercy upon them. Now, throughout the next couple of chapters, and over a few weeks, he will talk about bringing the Jews into the kingdom as well. But we need to understand the principle that God is sovereign, sovereign creation, his sovereign power. We all have rebelled against him. His wanting to show mercy on whom he shows mercy is within his right to do that as God. For us to question that is foolish. Now, to a people outside of salvation, this is a difficult thing to read. And I get that. That's why I don't use this as an evangelistic text very often. It doesn't lend itself to that, though some have. But it is a reminder to us as believers of how fortunate we are. With that reason, I will glorify and I will enjoy and I will praise God for the mercy he has shown me. As opposed to his wrath. Then he gives some examples. He goes to the book of Hosea. Hosea is an interesting prophetic book. Hosea is an interesting guy who marries a woman named Gomer who is bent towards immorality. And you've got to read the whole book. <clears throat> he has three kids, but it's obviously a couple of those kids are not truly his. And because she sold herself into prostitution, Gomer represents Israel. And God is demonstrating to Hosea of how Israel has prostituted themselves in terms of worshiping pagan gods. So he says, verse 25, as he that is God says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and who, who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called the sons of the living God. So he's saying, he's going back to Hosea. Now, in, in, in the Old Testament books of prophecy, and, and I think people sometimes try to find things in the prophetic books that's just not there. They just that make stuff up. We always need to understand how that prophetic book pertained to the people at that time. There is also many times what we would call a secondary understanding. Sometimes the understanding of the prophetic book is purely in the future, talking a little bit about the coming Messiah. He will be born in Bethlehem. Of the house of David. That's purely prophetic, and we see that in Jesus. Sometimes, and I preach this in Christmas as well, as in uh, Isaiah 7 14, the, the interpretation, understanding is twofold. There is a present day understanding and an understanding for the future, most often concerning Jesus. Well, here in Hosea, you have that. There is an understanding for Hosea at that time, but there is also, that was back in the, in the uh, uh, 8th century, 700s. But there is also an understanding for us. The Gentiles were not God's people. They were a people of immorality, of adultery, of prostitution. But those who were not his people, in Christ now he has made his people. So in the Gentiles coming uh, to, to faith, there, that's us, there is then an understanding that God is fulfilling things he foretold 
hundreds and hundreds of years ago. We would say a couple thousand years ago. It's important because it demonstrates God's hand in all of history. Nothing happens in history outside of God ultimately having the final say. Then he goes on about Isaiah. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel now. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. So Israel will have a remnant saved. That will hold true Christian faith. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Now that's according to God's quickness, not ours, but thoroughly and quickly. Just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us to a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled good more. In other words, unless the Lord had intervened. Notice, who gets the credit for what has happened in Israel? God. He intervened on behalf of Israel. He is intervening on behalf of the Gentiles. So verse 30 said, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. In other words, they weren't trying to connect with God. They weren't trying to be right in God's sight. They weren't worshiping. They weren't serving. Those pagans back in that day, in the day of Paul, the Gentiles were thoroughly pagan. They were not in any way seeking for God as he reveals himself in Scripture. They had lots of religions, but they were not seeking the God who reveals himself to us. They weren't seeking that. They attained righteousness. The righteousness which is by faith. So they were not seeking righteousness, but purely by the grace of God, purely by the choosing of God, purely by the mercy of God. They obtained it through faith. Always got to have faith. But Israel, they pursued a law of, pursued a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Now, he's pointing out, he was, Paul, an expert in Jewish law. I've, I've shared this with you before, but it bears sharing quite often. Paul is one of the most brilliant men who have ever lived. We forget that. He, he you know, everybody talks about Aristotle and Socrates, you know, and they talk about Plato and those brilliant guys that influenced Western civilization. And Paul was influenced somewhat by them. That's not really an issue. But the most influential person, philosophically, on Western thought and civilization is Paul. Far more than Aristotle. Far more than Plato. Far more than Socrates. The world outside may not want to admit that, but if you're honest, and scholars who are honest understand whether they're Christian or not, we are so, in many ways, shaped by the thinking of Paul. He was a brilliant man, and Paul was a zealot for the law. As a Jew, Paul pursued the law. Like all Jews, they thought keeping the law would save them. And nobody understood the law in that day and age quite like Paul, which made him so good at refuting that. He said they pursued the law. But they did not arrive at that law. Why, verse 32 says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as by works. In other words, they thought the achieving of whatever the law was, was work-related, not faith-related. By the way, which is common in Christianity today. I am amazed at how many times 
I come across people who think that ultimately it is up to them to achieve a relationship with God. We say, and a lot of times we say that. And a lot of times we talk about that. Uh, yeah, I'm not even going to mention that guy. So here's the thing. They stumbled, he says, over the stumbling stone. Several times in the New Testament is written, like in verse 33. Behold, I lay in Zion, Israel, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That is Jesus. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. disappointed. Jesus is considered sometimes the, the, the cornerstone. Sometimes he's the capstone. The cornerstone back then, and I'm no engineer, I'm no architect, and I don't pretend to be one, but I do know this stuff. The, the cornerstone was the first stone laid at the corner to get the walls straight. Jesus is that cornerstone that everything is built off of. But to the Jews, he became a stumbling stone. They stumbled over him and didn't get it right. He became a rock, not of salvation, but of offense. And to the Jews, Jesus was offensive. And all of this was the result of them not pursuing by faith, but by works. So that, and I'm going to read the first few verses of chapter 10. Notice what Paul says. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, for them, is that is the Jews, is for their salvation. I think how many people you know that are not fathers of Christ, that you could say your desire and your prayer is for their salvation. All of us should have people, including me, that our desire, our passion, the word can be used to be lust, our pursuit, and our prayer, our fervent prayer, is that they might be saved. And by the way, people who pay, pray passionately and who pursue passionately the salvation of others normally will spend time sharing in some way Christ with them. I found the two go together. Unless you're not physically able to, by distance or whatever. For I bear witness or testify about them that they have a zeal for God. So he's saying the Jews have a zeal for God. But not in accordance with knowledge. They think they have knowledge, but he says not. For not knowing about God's righteousness. In other words, what they pursue the law. They don't really understand the righteousness of God. And seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you must have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and scribes. The idea is not one that's greater in degree, but different in kind. You have to have a righteousness that is superior because of the innate quality of that righteousness. The Jews, remember, righteousness is being right with God. The Jews sought righteousness by their works. Paul has just finished. Telling us that righteousness is established by justification. That God declares us to be right. We cannot make ourselves right. He must declare us right. And in declaring us right, he then will make us right. So last week, I preached from Romans chapter 1, Sunday. Everyone who believes. And I talked about justification. And sanctification, those big fancy words that we like to use, the Asians. To be justified is what God declares us. He declares us in right standing. 
Once we have been declared, or once we've been justified, he then simultaneously works in the process of sanctification or making us right, which is the process we're in now as a follower. The Jews pursued a sanctification, a being right, that was on their own. And so the Jews thought this way, I will become righteous so that I might be declared righteous. doesn't work that way. I will become something, I will become sinless, I will pursue God so that God will then declare me to be right based on what I have done. And it's the opposite. God declares me to be right and then he makes me right or I live that way. And they had it wrong because they forgot the the nexus. The key thing was faith, not work, faith. So they're pursuing a righteousness. That's why Jesus says you have to have a different kind of righteousness. So that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, the pursuit of righteousness, the word in, is the Greek word telos. It's an important word. It means to bring to completion or perfection. It's the, it's the concept or idea of a task that has come to the end of the road. And there is nothing left to be done. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he ends chapter 5 by saying, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, which does not mean sinless perfection. It means to become complete in every way as your Father is complete. Now that would ultimately involve being without sin. But the goal is to have a completeness, to have finished being what God wants you to be. And so he says, what Christ has done then is he has taken the law for righteousness, that sense of what God wants, and he has completed it, not for the Jew who pursues it, but for any person who has faith or who believes. So the key, once again, is faith. I always find it interesting that how often my Sunday sermons and my Wednesday stuff kind of blend. I don't plan it that way. I mean, I plan a lot of things. I don't plan that. It's just, that's just, I guess, God doing that stuff. And the thing about it that what's important is for us to understand people must come to faith. But faith isn't something that is an act of righteousness. Faith is a response to God revealing himself to us in the righteousness of Christ. And we take our life and we give it to Jesus. And when we've done that, regardless of Jew or Gentile, we are then in Christ. The righteousness of God does that. Not us. Now, go back to the start of the, of the lesson. For people who are outside of Christ, it's hard to understand that. And so if I'm going to share salvation with someone, I'm not going to spend a lot of time saying, now, you know, here's the thing. You've got to be declared righteous so that you can become righteous. And then faith. I mean, I'm just going to say, look, here's Jesus trusting with your life. Okay? Here's Jesus trusting with you. Don't. The thing that frustrates me about some people, and God bless them, I understand, is they, they want to take lost people and make them theologians, right? 
They want to take lost people and they want to, they want to, they want to take a, a system of theology and place it on their life. And say, now you've got to be this, and you, you, you've got to be elect, and you've got to be chosen. And if you're not chosen, this is what's going to happen. Let me tell you something. Lost people are lost. They can't understand that. Most of you don't understand that. There are times I don't understand that. Fortunately, I have plenty of people try to explain it to me because they think they do understand that. All lost people need to know is they are condemned because of their sin. And Jesus died to bring them salvation. You know what you and I got to do? We got to, I say this all the time, get them to Jesus as fast as we can. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus knows what to do. He always knows what to do. We want to help people come to a place of faith. Now, once they come to faith, and we can explain all this stuff to them, okay? It's important. But it's important to me as a follower of Christ to understand that when I'm helping a person come to faith, that I not mislead them into thinking it's something they're going to do, that they're doing the work. I need to know when I'm sharing the gospel, don't make the mistake of trying to tell a person that they're going to be able to save themselves. I need to help them understand, listen, there's nothing you do but give your life to Christ. You trust him. You don't have to go to church, be baptized. You don't have to believe the Bible. You don't have to believe the virgin birth. You don't have to believe in creation. You don't have to believe any of that. You have to believe in the resurrected Jesus. We're going to see that in chapter 10. When Paul says, probably next next week, matter of fact, no, two weeks, three weeks, whenever I do it again, because we're going to come to chapter 10, verse 8 and 9. We're just a few verses away. When you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? You have to believe in your heart God created the world? No. You have to believe in your heart the virgin birth? No. Do you have to believe in your heart the Bible's the word of God? No. You have to believe in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead. That's it. That's what we got to do. Now, once that happens, you know what we got to do? Then we got to teach them to believe all that other stuff. We have to help them believe all that other stuff. But first... Let's do what Scripture tells us to do. Let's get them to believe in their resurrection, resurrected Christ. That's the secret. And the reason so many churches fail is we keep trying to make lost people Christians instead of bringing lost people to Christ who will make them a Christian. That's really what Scripture teaches. If you don't believe that, that's not my problem. That's yours. Any comments or questions? I went till 7 o'clock. Joe would be happy if Joe was here. Let Joe know tonight. I went to 7 just to help him. Yes, sir. In what way? Okay, that's what you said. Well, anyhow, the cornerstone in the building obviously was what's set in place. So it's the it's idea of foundation. It, it, there are other places he's talked about in the foundation. From the analogy of what Scripture wants us to see, 
is that Christ is the key then to salvation. So it's, it's, it's not necessarily so much that if you get the teachings of Jesus wrong, that you'll be off kilter. It's the fact that if you don't have Jesus there, and so the concept of Jews stumbling over Jesus is the idea that they're building something without the cornerstone. So that they're trying to build something, they keep stumbling over the cornerstone. They don't want the cornerstone. They want to take the cornerstone out, and they want to build it. So the Jewish religious system was a system built on the Jewish understanding and then the Jewish law. That's why they had 600, what was it, 13 laws or something like that, instead of you know the 10 that God had. And, and so what ends up happening is, in the idea of a cornerstone then, is the idea that you start with Jesus, and then everything else comes from here, there. The Jews stumbled over him because they removed the cornerstone, or they removed Jesus out of the peace, and they tried to build their own house, their own place. And so that would be where. We, we, we don't want to get too, we have to be careful then in calling about the cornerstone, that we don't take the analogy too far and start saying that if we start getting stuff about Jesus wrong, then the house, which is true. If we get stuff wrong about Jesus, the house will fall. But that's not necessarily what Paul was getting across. Paul was getting across that to the Jews who were unbelievers, they were unbelievers because they took the cornerstone and they moved it out of the way and they replaced it with something else. So hopefully that helps. Thank you for that question. What else? So you're saying is the hardening of the heart just a natural result of rejecting? Well, in these cases, no, it's not. He, it says God hardened in, in Exodus. God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Here it says God chose you know, what he did. So it's a deliberate act of God. <clears throat> now, if you go to Exodus, is the classic example. Pharaoh hardened his heart numerous times, and God hardened some times, those times too, about an equal number. Pharaoh first hardened his heart. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart began with rebellion, period, against God, thinking he was a God. I did a whole series on that. But we need to understand that God is actively involved in our lives so that the person who rejects God it's not simply that this, the course of your rejection is eventually this. It is that God works in that rejection. And in working that rejection, he is, he is bringing into your life circumstances, hopefully to get you to come to faith, but if not, to demonstrate, as he did to Pharaoh, he and Lord is God. So God came to Pharaoh and demonstrated to Pharaoh repeatedly, I am God, I am God. You're hardening your heart. If you want to harden your heart, He'll do it. Scripture says God gives us the desires of our heart. He gives us over. So God is actively involved in that process. That does not mean he's responsible for our sin or hardening, but God is actively involved in bringing to the lost person that which is they, what they deserve. Otherwise, it would simply be a matter of God does not bring about the judgment or the, any of the hardening, and it becomes a cause and effect like karma and all that stuff that is god is not it's not cause and effect it's god's intervention and working in life to bring about his will god is always in control 
of that situation. What else? 